Hello there, this is Dr. Casey Bradley, and you're listening to the Real P3 Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the real pork producers around the world. I hope you enjoy. In this episode, we're going to go down under to visit with my friend David Hedman with Rivoli, Australia, one of the largest pork producers on the continent of Australia. We're going to learn about what he's been focusing on lately and how the differences in his market creates its own challenges as well. So stay tuned. So hello, Dave. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks, Casey. I'm well today. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your operation for our audience? My name's David Henman. I've uh, been a nutritionist with uh, Rivoli Australia, which has had a few incarnations over the years. But So I've been here for about 30-odd years now, mainly as the, in the nutrition area, but also in a few sales and, then, and certainly in the technical area. So it's been uh, good from that point of view. And uh, Rivoli is a completely integrated system. So we have uh, feed mills, piggeries, abattoirs and some further processing as well so we cover the whole gambit uh, we have about 45 between 42 and 45,000 sows depends on which day you count them of course uh, across basically southern new south wales and northern victoria which is down in the, the southeast part of australia we have probably three feed mills one large feed mill and two smaller ones to uh, feed our operation. We do a little bit of outside dairy business as well. 80% of our business is all pigs, as you can imagine, and our internal pigs. So uh, that keeps us pretty busy from that point of view. We're spread across a number of farms. Probably the lucky thing for us is no farms are exactly the same. So it's quite different from everywhere else in the world. So we've sort of uh, grown organically over the years and uh, and put different systems in just about every place we go or buy different systems. So we have many different challenges in many different spots and each one is different. So that certainly adds to the excitement of uh, formulating diets and preparing operations for that. So So did I read somewhere that you were bought by JBS? Uh, We are in the process of that. We're just waiting on all the authorizations to come through, which is always the slow part of the process uh, for many of those things. So hopefully by the end of the year, we'll uh, be definitely uh, sorted out who our new owners are. So so no massive uh, changes yet for your system? No, we're probably sitting there waiting for everything to, to come in and see what, see what changes might come forth from us. But we're actually uh, quite looking forward to it. Uh, JBS has a pretty good reputation on the pig side of things, certainly from the States and, and from the UK. So we're certainly looking forward to the challenges that uh, come with that and probably to add some of our own flavour to their operations as well. So, Yeah, it'd be a kind of exciting, you know, Brazil, US, Australia. Absolutely. Actually, yeah. I forgot about the Brazilians. We actually, uh, as part of our original company, Bungie, we actually used to uh, be owners of the Sierra organisation as oh, well. That's right, yeah. So uh, we're actually getting back to our roots a little bit, uh, back to the original uh, concept where we were. So it'll be be good to catch up with those guys again after after quite a few years, 20 odd years or 15 years or so. Yeah, so it's been a while since we've met as well. In I guess in the every time we catch up at some international conferences, we talk about different things. And I think a lot of our conversations and some of the challenges that you spoke of is around enteric challenges in your system. How are you guys kind of managing that from a, a nutritional perspective or, or what types of challenges are you seeing in Australia today? 
Yeah, well, certainly it, it's changed over the years since since our early conversations. I mean, the early conversations, we probably relied a lot on antibiotics to control a lot of those enteric diseases. That's certainly uh, changed in the last 10 years especially. Uh, we have to learn how to, to manage that differently, and I think we have to a greater extent, but it means we've got to change our management processes as well as our nutrition thought processes. Before, we used to just uh, formulate diets and whatever was cheapest went in, and, and certainly for graph finisher diets, that was the case, and uh, just keep it as cheap as possible and, and run with that. Today, we, we, we certainly have to take into account how the gut changes, how the selection of our raw materials actually influences that gut and causes any upsets in that situation. So we've certainly learned a lot about that. And I think hygiene is the other thing that's probably been critical to uh, our organisation, trying to deal with the, those enteric challenges. We used to have some major challenges with those. And certainly since we're putting in place the, the hygiene processes, making sure that in between batches is, a, is properly cleaned out and using disinfectants and uh, and that sort of thing. So we've learned just to keep that challenge at bay. I don't think we get rid of it, and it can raise its head if you uh, get the right environmental conditions. But certainly I think we've managed it a lot better than what we used to. And there's a lot more tools out there to, to manage that now as well. So acids has certainly has been a, a good benefit in that area. I think the, the phytogenic compounds, as they come through, have a place to play in that area. Exactly what that is, is probably depending on where you are and, and uh, the situation you're in. But uh, certainly I think they do have a place to play in the future. So what is uh, some of the things that have been your current challenges then, I guess, nutritionally or in production? Yeah, probably uh, our biggest challenge has been some of our respiratory challenges. We've certainly had uh, some of those faces and that, that's certainly over sort of gone over the top of our uh, other sort of enteric challenges. But um, uh, as we get on top of those, we start to see the enteric challenges come back to the fore again. So uh, you certainly get over one and then the next one's just around the corner. So that seems to be the way. Um, we've probably attacked the E. coli challenges that we used to have through genetic manipulation and uh, genetic means. We've certainly reduced that level of challenge. And certainly as we uh, improve some of our systems out there uh, which have been pretty old we start to see better improvements in that mm -hmm. area as well so that, that's probably the key things and just maintaining that the other area that's probably been the, the critical thing is probably managing our carcass composition that's been a, a probably the other area every time we uh, find a way of manipulating our carcass composition to have a bit less fat in there and a bit more meat usually those products get banned pretty well straight away and we have to start again so that's always been an interesting concept to look at. Yeah. So I'm going to back you up a little bit. You said some genetic changes you made to control E. coli. Did that just totally change your genetics, um, your crossbreeding? How did that look kind of helping no, in that area? We are lucky. Uh, what I did fail to mention before is we, we have our own genetics. So uh, in Australia, we haven't had any imports of genetics for 30, 40 years uh, at least. So we've all had our own internal genetics in Australia and uh, we've certainly got our own. So that does allow us to look at the scenarios and I'm not a geneticist, so I can't get into it too much. <laughs> I'm not I, either. What I, yeah, <laughs> what I do know is that uh, they found a gene that uh, can improve the resistance of that pig 
to E. coli challenges. I think it's the K88 essentially. But what we have seen since we started uh, putting that into our genetic selection program, which, which took about three or four years, or probably four or five years probably to get through the whole system, we've seen a dramatic decline in the level of E. coli that we saw across all our farms. It doesn't go away, but it certainly reduces it enormously. So was there anything else kind of tied to that selection criteria that changed? I mean, in your perspective from production to say, are we, you know, picking for one selection and that's changed that maybe that gene and we're having more in the U.S., for instance, more equalized challenges? So. Yeah, we, we didn't see anything negative in terms of uh, what we saw from that uh, selection process. It, again, it was a more of a criteria. We tested basically every ball that we had going into our genetic program and uh, they had to have this K88 resistance gene in it. As I said, it took a few years, but once we got that through the process, it improved. It probably slows down some of your other traits in terms of selection, but you're still improving. So as long as you've got the index in there and you're not just doing a single, single selection, um, you do see improvements across the whole board. Yeah, well, there's, you know, managing E. coli and enteric challenges. To, I always go back to the sow and you talked about, you know, changing how you're feeding. Has that started with the sow that you've changed some of that to improve immunity as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, we started tinkering with sow diets a long time ago and uh, we keep doing it. But I think there's been uh, certainly in the last three years, probably a real impetus to start pushing for changing the sow diets and changing periods within um, that sow cycle that we feed different diets. But certainly uh, a number of years ago, we would have in some of our systems only one diet all the way through. And that was the cheap diet. And uh, it just was, was not expected to do anything. We went through some droughts a number of years ago, and that certainly uh, changed our concept. And because we, as we went through those droughts and went through uh, lack of profitability and then a lot of those circumstances, the first thing that went was the sour diets. What we did learn from that process was that if you muck that up in one year, it's a four-year cycle to actually get out of that problem. So the number one rule that came back and uh, from the management and us was don't muck with those sour diets. Make sure that you've got those. Uh, that's the last thing you change and the last thing that upsets things. So I think what we've learned from that process is take a lot of uh, care in, uh, in managing that lactation diet especially. And, and really allow that to have the highest level of feed intake in there and, and really push those out. But we've also got to make sure that you have the right uh, the gut scenarios in there so don't allow those cells to have upsets. And that's probably what we're focused on, it's just making sure that we don't upset those, those cells as we go through the process. So we, we have our uh, core list of ingredients that go into our lactation diets and uh, we rarely ever change them. They do move up and down a little bit, but they certainly don't go in and out of the diet. And that's really a key option that uh, has really made a difference in our lactating sour area. Yeah, I think our producers today are having challenges keeping diets the same with our lysine yeah, shortage. It's tough. In <laughs> it is tough. <laughs> so anything, I mean, from a standpoint that you've been working on nutritionally, fundamentally changes i mean you said respiratory are you doing anything different from a nutrition standpoint on that or no i wish we could uh, that's probably the one that's uh, eluded us and uh, i don't think we're alone in that aspect i think trying to manage uh, respiratory scenarios from a nutrition perspective is hard we have 
the gut lung axis, as they call it now, is uh, is certainly something that's uh, propped up in the last two years or three years. Uh, and I think it comes down to actually how we look at the mucin content and actually the, the jury's out whether you actually produce more mucin to try and re attack the actual respiratory diseases there or do you reduce the, the mucin production and hopefully reduce the level of uh, bacterial count that's in there. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a bit of uh, a jury out on exactly which way to go. But what we do know is we can actually change it. So right. yep. I think that's probably the key thing that we can look for in the future is which way we end up going. I'm not sure, but uh, one way or the other, I think we'll find out which is the, the best options. Well, awesome. So what is the current status of the Australian pork industry with everything going on with COVID? It's been a couple of years since we've been face-to-face -face and yeah, just kind of absolutely. curious of how the, the market is there and, and things like that. Well, we've certainly had some consolidation in the market over the last few years. It's, it's now, uh, whereas we were the biggest player in the marketplace by, by quite some distance, it, it, there's certainly other players in there that have uh, stepped up to the game and, and a bit of consolidation in the industry for sure. I think that's improved the uh, the level of production essentially across the whole industry. It, it's certainly improving a lot. As I say, our genetics is uh, pretty insular and that we don't have any outside genetics coming in. So probably the one thing that's uh, slowed us down is our sow genetic progress, our litter size scenarios. Just, we're not catching up to the rest of the world in that area as much as we would like, but certainly in our growth rates and everything, we're, we're progressing pretty well. But, uh, with that comes, we're still killing probably at a, at a lighter weight than the rest of the world. We're probably still at 100 kilos live weight, 105 kilos live weight, starting to increase. And a lot of that is probably because uh, our supermarkets want a certain cut at a certain size to fit in a certain packet. And a pig of 100 kilos fits that packet. So, yeah, I was curious about that. Yeah, of how, you know, the plants and the grocery stores um, would handle that bigger carcass because it's been some of our challenges that we've faced as well over here. So Yeah, certainly we've had a few tries at trying to improve it, but every time we get to the sort of the uh, final point of actually doing it, we tend to find the consumers tend to pull back on it a little bit. They're looking for that, just that right size, and, and that seems to be the critical thing in terms of uh, repeat purchases that we're looking at and uh, continued purchases. So that's probably the area that uh, we need to figure out how to present that product better. And that's probably the challenges that we face from a marketing point of view in Australia. And we have to work with the supermarkets to achieve that. So we want to take this break to thank our sponsors, the Sunswine Group, Nutriswine, Swine Nutrition Management, and Pig Progress. But we also wanted to remind you of our new Facebook group, The Global Swine Professionals. We're going to be doing something fun, some live interviews, some Q&A, and we just want to hear from our audience. So that's a great place for you to take the time, leave us a comment, tell us what you want to hear, or volunteer to be on our show, because we're always looking for those awesome pork producers around the world. Well, that's all I had, so let's get back to that episode now. So if you can imagine, you know, a hundred kilo pigs, I think it's been a long time ago. Most of our <laughs> pigs are about a 130 yeah, and we were yeah. probably having some 150s plus this last yeah. couple of years here. And so it has created its own challenges. I know um, working with Anna Dilger at the University of Illinois, they have some projects with the pork board 
looking at just how to cut the Boston shoulder differently and get that size back down to where the yeah. consumers want to buy it. And so that is a good challenge. I mean, more efficiency obviously is kilograms and body weight, but then the consumer rate. As yeah, most, absolutely. And most of your pork's going to the domestic market then? Yeah, essentially probably 85% would go to our domestic market and into our pork market. Most of, uh, probably 50% of our bacon and ham would come from overseas into our situation. So that hamstrings us a little bit in terms of that's where any bigger carcasses used to go. So pretty much we're, we're a holy pork market that sort of constrains us a bit on that size as well. Certainly our, our cost of feed and cost of production in that area probably doesn't allow us to do a lot of exports around the world. But uh, where we do, we probably put it into the high-value markets where we can. And again, most of those high-value markets tend to be the smaller carcass. So it, mm-hmm. it just hamstrings us a little bit in that. But we're learning to how to manage that and uh, getting better at it as we go. But it, it's a really concerted effort and you have to have everyone at the table to uh, achieve those results, which is uh, not always uh, when there's competing objectives in there. That's not always the easiest way to go forward. But I'm sure we'll get there in the longer term. Yeah. How have you guys managed COVID in your systems? And have you have faced any shutdowns in the Epitor or things like that because of COVID? Yeah, we've uh, probably we've managed it pretty well in Australia as a general in whole. We've probably missed out on the first number of waves efficiently. It, it does catch up with us, but uh, uh, and we certainly had Melbourne, which has had the the highest city in the world for lockdowns. It was locked down for the longest period of time for anywhere else in the world. And that just happens to be where our biggest abattoir is as well. So uh, lucky for us, we were deemed essential workers, which is always handy in a situation. And so we could go to work. Uh, we did have to slow down to two-thirds speed and because we, we could only have two-thirds of our workers in the, the meat uh, abattoirs at any one time which did slow us down, which, which did put a lot of pressure on the system. And again, it came down to uh, a lot of what they did in the States as well, just how you manage that weight mm-hmm. going forward and how, how do you keep that under control. Lucky for us, we, we did start at a lower ebb, so we did have smaller carcasses to start with, so that, that certainly helped in that aspect. So we had a few weeks up our sleeve that we could adjust things with, and we also had been working on how you actually manipulate growth rates in pigs for quite some period of time. Before that, anyway, how we actually managed to slow pigs down, keep them under control, mainly from a from a carcass composition point of view, but it certainly came to the fore when you actually had to do it for real in uh, in situations where you just didn't want pigs backing up in the system. But in general, we, we probably came out of it pretty well. We probably only had a month of hard work to try and manage that situation, and then then we were pretty much clear of that. And now it's 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 probably back to pretty much normal now, as we see. It's awesome. So with your carcasses, what is the percent lean that you guys are targeting for the producer? From a producer point of view, we, we tend to talk in the old scale of P2, which, which is probably hard for us uh, as it doesn't relate a lot to the carcass composition in terms of the actual total fat, but, mm-hmm. but that's what they measure. And they use that as a, as a cliff face pricing for us. So anything above about 14 millimetres as we call it, which is just over half an inch, really. We basically get very little for that pig. They, they start probably taking a third of the price off that pig pretty quick. And then we get down to our prime pig is under 12 mils, which is very lean and uh, makes it hard to get all those pigs in that market bracket, so to speak. So we have to 
keep a tight control on how fast they grow and, and how efficiently they grow just to make sure that we keep that uh, carcass lean up and, and keep that back fat low. But at the same time, they still want some intermuscular fat in there, mm-hmm. which makes it uh, doubly difficult to try and do as well. So we're trying to figure out how you do that at this time as well. Not to a lot of success yet. Mm-hmm. We, need, we need the Angus pig and, yeah, we haven't That's gotten it. there. <laughs> we need that Angus pig. We're looking at how we do it from a genetic point of view and all sorts of areas, but uh, we haven't come up with the answer yet. Well, great discussion. I appreciate your time. But normally, if you want, I give my guests the opportunity to ask me a question. So I get to turn the table and let you interview me or ask me a question. Ask you a question. I'd love to ask you a question. I think the question I have is, uh, is how it's going in the States. And I've really enjoyed the, the, the training aspects that are coming through in your business and, and how you find that working with producers in that aspect, it's probably one of our bigger challenges uh, is training and, and how we achieve that. And uh, it's certainly a breath of fresh air to see that the training starting to come to the forefront in businesses. And I think that's uh, how, do you, how do you find that in your business as, as the training goes forward? Well, I definitely think um, it's the forefront of everyone. The labor issue we've had has been probably our number one challenge as pork producers is having staff like we just take warm bodies let alone staff that are trained or a good stockman that would have the background like myself in the barns we just don't have that anymore and so i think culture and that dynamic shift we are at a tough spot right now of the american workforce and i'm not sure it's just american i think it's globally the younger generation lifestyle changes and, and how is agriculture going to adjust to that so I've been, you know, doing a lot of investigation into that, talking to different producers. You know, we have a lot of issues here in the U.S. with our visas and immigration to get staff in. We could bring labor up for sure, but that brings another challenge with the language barriers and, and things like that. So it's a fine balance. I think people are realizing they need to work on culture. So talking to different people out there. I'm excited to hear things like Cloverleaf and, you know, um, Summit Smart Farms and Ag Team Build and some of those other people I've met working on that aspect, the people. A lot of times it's about getting the job done and you really fo- don't focus on the people and the fun part about it and why we do it. So that's probably been our number one challenge. And then you throw crazy stuff in like our ports being backed up and licensing yeah. ship. So, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and asking, you know, how do we formulate dyes without lysine? I'm like, well, it's just corn soy. We just go back. <laughs> we just go <laughs> back to where we were. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and then we're like, oh, I guess we won't soy nutritionists be out of business then once they learn they don't need us. But, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, when working with the younger generation and trying to help them succeed, I have some lots of good ideas. It's going to be a tough culture shift in agriculture, I think, for the future. And regardless if we're pork, dairy, beef, mm-hmm. poultry, it's going to be a tough shift in how we work and how the younger generations in our systems. So I would say that's kind of how it, you know, we're surviving. We're seeing the same thing, consolidation between access to abattoirs, to, mm-hmm. you know, feed costs, to contracts and things of I think a challenge to that that's forcing consolidation in our industry as well so yes they are fairly similar despite the differences 
between the two, we, we do face a lot of the same challenges. Going yeah, forward, I think so. a lot of the, the pork producers do um, mm. globally from, from what I hear, you know, different labor issues and language barriers and, and culture differences and things. And I think it's pretty broad depending on, around the world in the pork industry today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. A whole hundred percent with labor is going to be uh, an interesting and an interesting concept was uh, we were talking about this the other day with smart farming. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you have the producers that are scared of smart farming, you know, the older generation because they're scared of tech and then, yep. but um, I think some of the tech has to come a long ways into being robust enough and being able to work in a barn consistently too. So. Absolutely. And one of the things that we talk about now with, our, with those tech-type operations and that smart farming is, uh, is it still takes people to run those systems. And it's more critical now than, than probably ever that uh, you have those, those skills in there of animal management and understanding that to, uh, to be able to utilise that for that smart farming. Uh, exactly. You know, I think that's lost on a lot of the, the smart farming area. But we're talking about sensors and measuring feed intake, and nobody's created one to move those sows yet and load those farrows. Absolutely. Crates. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> one of the most dangerous jobs. Yeah. You still have to have that guy there to, and, and girl there to move those, uh, move those animals about and, uh, and, and look at them to, to come up with mm-hmm. their answers. So I think that's important. Well, thank you so much, Dave. It was a pleasure having you and pleasure seeing you from a distance. So I thank you for your time. Uh, Thank you, Casey. All the best. Well, before we go, the discussion was too short, not long enough. I do miss interacting with Dave from time to time at different conferences. But I hope you learned something about Australia pork and seeing how vastly different swine operations and challenges can be around the world. So as always... If you get a chance today, hug a pig for me. Before we go, we want to thank our sponsors again. Swine Nutrition Management, NutriSign, Pig Progress, and the Sun Swine Group. Don't forget to join our Facebook, the Global Swine Professionals. And as always, if you get a chance, hug a pig for me today.